The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Even with Harvey, it's all about him. This is Thursday, August 31st, 2017. Thank you very much for listening to this expanded edition and for supporting this free independent news when you use and bookmark the Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. The good news for Houston is that the flood water there has crested and the water level is headed down in some areas. But this nightmare that is bigger than Katrina, bigger than Sandy, is not nearly over. How lucky we are, those of us who are not among the 31 people who've died or lost loved ones, or the 32,000 who've lost their homes and jobs to the more than four feet of water left behind by a storm called Harvey, a record rainfall for the continental United States. There are no words to describe the anguish we feel on their behalf and how much most of us want to help. Many people have stepped up from around the country in one heroic effort after another. $110 million have been donated by caring Americans already. It's easy to find the right charity through a Google search, easier still to donate to the American Red Cross, which has coordinated shelter for tens of thousands and perhaps ultimately hundreds of thousands of people washed out of their homes. 14,000 Texas National Guard troops are now helping as well. After the storm overwhelmed Houston and that part of South Texas and shrunk from a Category 4 hurricane to a record-breaking tropical storm, it then moved back out into the Gulf, gathered up more warm water, and headed back to shore where Texas meets Louisiana. Hundreds of emergency shelters are occupied now, even after several shelters were themselves flooded out. Some people are staying in national parks. A third of a million homes are without electricity. In Crosby, Texas this morning, there were two big explosions at a chemical plant where crucial refrigeration had stopped working to prevent exactly that, and there may be more explosions. The company would not say what chemicals it was storing, and Texas law says it doesn't have to disclose that information. The exploding chemical was industrial peroxide, but there were other chemicals. So we don't know what chemical pollution will result from the flooding, not to mention the contamination from compromised sewage systems. Several oil refineries, including the nation's largest along the Texas-Louisiana border, are shut down. Look for gas prices to go up nationwide. This is not nearly over. The National Hurricane Center says, quote, catastrophic and life-threatening flooding will continue in and around Houston, eastward into southeast Louisiana for the rest of the week. The government, insurance companies, charities, and others will be dealing with the aftermath for years to come. It is, at a devastating time like this, the unwritten responsibility of a president to lead the nation. At times like these, we've come to count on having someone to offer comfort and assurance and to inspire confidence and optimism. That requires a leader, someone more focused on the pain of the victims than on his own agenda. But right now, we have Donald J. Trump instead. To his credit, he did yesterday what he had not done since the storm first bore down on Texas six days beforehand. He tweeted it, of course, saying his heart goes out to the people of Texas, but even in that message from his thumbs, he talked about himself. After witnessing the horror, he wrote, even though he never got close enough to see any, never met any of the victims. Because from the moment that Harvey hovered off Houston, Trump showed no concern, no compassion, only what appeared to be excitement about a record-breaking storm. As he boarded his helicopter for an R&R &R weekend at Camp David, as the storm approached, 
A reporter asked if he had a message for the people in the storm's path. Good luck, he shouted. As America held its breath for Houston, Trump would that evening pardon Joe Arpaio and ban transgenders from the military, making those his priorities over the Americans in harm's way he had sworn to protect. On Saturday, he retweeted a post from the FEMA director urging the president to be safe on his upcoming trip to the disaster zone, something that concerned him more than the victims. On Sunday, as Houston was drowning, Trump plugged a book by another renegade sheriff, Milwaukee's David Clark. When the big storm crossed his mind later that day, Trump tweeted, Great news is that we have great talent on the ground. There was again nothing about or to the victims. It was a self-congratulatory tweet on the great job Trump thinks Trump is doing with the emphasis on self. Later, he tweeted about his plans to fly to Texas, but then he quickly moved on to plug his pending speech in Missouri, a state he won by a lot, he pointed out. As people had died and others were being hauled to shelters in rowboats and dump trucks. After that, Trump again tweeted about the great job his people were doing in Texas. But because the mega-disaster only occupied part of his brain, he also tweeted about building a wall instead of rebuilding Houston. And then, because the mind wanders, Trump tweeted about NAFTA, but nada about the victims of Harvey. Monday, as we began to better understand the massive scope of this tragedy, Trump's tweets focused on slamming Obama, and again, the Washington Post, again. Trump arrived in Texas wearing a white USA cap you can buy on his website for 40 bucks, with none of the money going to the storm victims. What a crowd, he declared, as if this were another of his monthly campaign rallies. Trump met with his FEMA director there, Brock Long, telling the cameras Long is, quote, a man who's really become famous on television over the last couple of days. To Trump, his guy's fame was the most important thing. When he seemed to realize what he'd said, he quickly added, we'll congratulate each other when it's all finished. During his visit, Trump said not a word about those who had died or those who had lost their homes or businesses. He had nothing to say to the evacuees huddled in shelters. And so it went until yesterday when Trump tweeted that his heart goes out to Texas while also referencing the fact that he saw it personally. And then it was off to Missouri to announce his proposed tax reforms as the need in Texas and Louisiana grew bigger. There, in Missouri, he finally said out loud his concern for the victims, or rather, he read it, word for word, from a teleprompter, his eyes never leaving the page to look directly at those victims through the lens of a camera. He didn't even look up at the crowd. He just read. The compassion of Donald Trump comes from a teleprompter in words written by someone other than him. Four years ago, after Hurricane Sandy and the devastation it caused along the Upper East Coast, the U.S. Senate considered a disaster relief package Texas Republican Senators John Cornyn and Ted Cruz voted against that disaster relief package. It had been a dozen years at that point since the last big floods in Texas. On Friday, as Hurricane Harvey closed in on the Texas coast, both Cornyn and Cruz sent the president a letter urging him to declare Texas a major disaster area. But Cruz and Cornyn may not be alone in their regrets, assuming they have any. In the five years leading up to this record-breaking disaster, 25,000 Houstonians dropped their flood insurance, according to the Associated Press. That's a drop of 9%. Some of those five years were also the tight money days of the Great Recession. Across the entire damage area, 80% of the victims do not have flood insurance. 
5%. All they have is a promise from Trump he'll take care of them. Meanwhile, back in Washington, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer is trying to keep the National Flood Insurance Program afloat, which has already received 37,000 claims from the victims of Harvey. Now covering millions of homeowners, that insurance is set to expire in less than 30 days, just as tens of thousands of people have fled or are fleeing their flooded homes. 210,000 people have applied for federal disaster assistance. A storm named Harvey brought this country its worst natural disaster in history. And at a time there is no president to say the right things when we most need to hear them. What becomes of the Trump-Russia investigation depends almost entirely on the Republicans in Congress. So where are the Republicans now on that investigation? It depends on which Republican you're asking. Indications are the Senate Judiciary Committee is about to release the transcripts of testimony by the man who sponsored and stands behind the dossier that helped launch the FBI investigation into this possible conspiracy. The dossier was compiled by a highly respected former British spy who was hired first by Republicans and then by a wealthy Democratic supporter who also happens to be a highly respected investigative journalist. That former reporter testified to the Senate Judiciary Committee for 10 hours recently that he stands behind the dossier and the work of the man who used his spy contacts to gather that information. It's a damning dossier that contains salacious accusations about Trump's visit to Russia for the 2013 Miss Universe pageant. It tells of Trump with Russian prostitutes demonstrating a particular fetish and offers evidence Trump conspired with Russia to get himself elected president. Now it's up to the Judiciary Committee to either release the dossier to the public or not. And since Republicans hold the majority in that committee, as they do throughout Congress, it's ultimately up to the Republicans. It's an 11 to 9 majority they have on that committee, presuming that all the Democrats there vote yes. Only two Republicans need to join them to get the dossier into the daylight. And now the former chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Orrin Hatch of Utah, says he'll vote yes. And the current chairman, Chuck Grassley of Iowa, says he'd be in favor of releasing the dossier if that's how the committee votes. And because Hatch and Grassley are respected senior members of the Judiciary Committee, most of the other Republicans on the panel could be expected to follow them. The release of that dossier would be a huge step in the Trump-Russia investigation, and it appears some key Republicans, widely respected throughout the Senate, are ready to open it up. But of course, there are Republicans in Congress who are working to derail the investigation. In the House, not-so-famous Florida Representative Ron DeSantis has introduced a bill to cut off funding for the Mueller investigation six months after that bill becomes law, assuming it does. But even that would give Mueller six months to wrap up the investigation, and with this news, Mueller is already unnoticed. The clock might be ticking. But DeSantis' amendment would also limit the Mueller investigation to only things that have happened since June of 2015, when Donald Trump announced he was running for president. Even if the House passes DeSantis's bill, it probably wouldn't make it through the Senate. And even if DeSantis's bill were to become law, the findings of special counsel Robert Mueller would likely be passed on to the House or Senate committees or elsewhere, as you'll soon hear. And the House and Senate committees are also making progress. Many Americans are concerned that Trump might pardon friends and relatives who may face criminal charges, thereby nullifying the Mueller investigation. But Trump associates could still go to prison for felonies anyway. 
For those concerned, there is a ray of hope from another direction. According to NBC News legal analyst Ari Melber, he reports that a massive pardons from Trump wouldn't stop state prosecutors in New York primarily, but really any of the 39 states where voter registration computers were hacked by Russians. States also have laws about this kind of thing. And a president's federal pardon means nothing in a state court. States can even prosecute someone who'd already been acquitted at the federal level, so said the U.S. Supreme Court in 1959. And state prosecutors could legally use evidence gathered to that point by the grand juries employed by special counsel Robert Mueller. State prosecutors could investigate the hackings of the Democratic National Committee on charges of conspiracy to distribute stolen material using facts already confirmed by a slew of U.S. intelligence agencies. Sure, counterintelligence cases are usually the purview of the feds, but if Trump starts handing out pardons, states are likely to step in. Because of double jeopardy law, states could only prosecute if Trump issued a pardon before the accused was convicted. The president would have to wait for that friend or family member to be convicted to pardon them, something Trump wouldn't likely do if the accused is, say, his oldest son. The New York Attorney General's office says in the event of any preemptive pardon or pardons at the federal level, its prosecutors would, quote, look at the facts and the law and protect the rule of law as best they can. A former Watergate prosecutor tells NBC News that a federal shutdown of the case would make for, quote, absolutely a stronger local case. And now we've learned that for weeks now, Special Counsel Robert Mueller's been working with the New York Attorney General on the investigation into Paul Manafort, perhaps to make sure that Trump associates can be prosecuted at the state level in the event Trump starts handing out pardons. Mueller and New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman have also reportedly been sharing evidence, Schneiderman offering information Mueller didn't yet have. More about the Paul Manafort investigation in a moment. Felix Sater is a name mentioned here five weeks ago. You may remember him as the guy who stabbed another man in the face with the stem of a broken martini glass in a New York City bar fight and went to prison for it. Seventeen years ago, Sater was also convicted in a $40 million stock fraud scheme. He did not go to jail for that. Instead, the U.S. government hired him to rat on the Russian mob. He did that for ten years. But also during that 10 years, Felix Sater partnered with Donald Trump to invest in three properties. One was never built, another was foreclosed, and only one remains in New York Soho District. They called their partnership Bayrock, and although that partnership was eventually dissolved, Sater stayed on with Trump's company as an advisor. He had his own Trump Organization business cards. Sater once turned down money from an Icelandic investor, telling that investor Bayrock only took investors from certain countries, since the company he co-owned with Trump was, quote, closer to Putin. Sater also met regularly with Trump during the campaign. The prosecutor who nailed Sater for stock fraud 17 years ago now works for Robert Mueller. And it was with this information about Sater that the Senate Intelligence Committee began following the money. 
The name Felix Sater was back in the news this week thanks to some documents one of Trump's own lawyers turned over to congressional investigators. Trump lawyer Michael Cohen has had significant contact with Felix Sater. And quoting from one of Sater's emails, Our boy can become president of the USA and we can engineer it. I will get all of Putin's team to buy in on this. I will get Putin on this program and we will get Donald elected. Why did a Trump lawyer turn over such damning information to a Senate committee investigating Trump Russia? Presumably for the same reason that that lawyer has hired his own lawyer to put his own spin on what's happened. Cohen says he was working with Sater to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, an idea he says ultimately fell by the wayside. Nothing to see here. But in the course of that real estate effort, Trump lawyer Cohen also reached out to the spokesman for Vladimir Putin to arrange a meeting to ask for help. Cohen wrote Putin's spokesman Dmitry Peskov explaining the project and reporting that the project had gotten hung up on details. Cohen says Peskov never wrote back. Peskov confirms all of that. But Cohen also says he discussed this with Trump personally three times. The second time was to discuss an agreement which Trump signed later during the campaign, a discussion of a business deal that would, quote, get Donald elected. And it was during that campaign that Trump repeatedly praised Vladimir Putin while he was hoping to get that Russian government funding for his Trump Tower Moscow. The funding was to come from a Russian bank that's majority owned by the Russian government. That's one of four Russian banks whose names have come up in the Trump-Russia investigation. Another of those banks, Alpha Bank, had its computers somehow connected with the computers in Trump Tower, New York, with the two servers communicating frequently and regularly, we still don't know about what. The lawyer who spoke in defense of that Russian bank has now been nominated by Trump to head the criminal division of the Justice Department, which oversees the very kinds of investigations currently underway involving Trump and his people. Heading the Justice Department criminal division is usually handled by someone with more prosecutorial experience. It was, for example... One of Bob Mueller's old jobs. And it is within this week's revelations that first daughter Ivanka Trump's name appears. Michael, wrote Felix Sater in one of his emails to Cohen, I arranged for Ivanka to sit in Putin's private chair at his office in the Kremlin. I know how to play it and we will get this done, wrote Sater, who often bragged to others in the Trump camp about his connections with the Russian government. The Trump camp believed that close ties with Moscow would give Trump a competitive edge over Hillary Clinton and thereby help Trump get elected. They saw it as a way to prove to the public Trump's negotiating savvy. Felix Sater wrote of wanting to show the Russians video of Trump praising Putin to try to get Putin to praise Trump's negotiating skills. If he says it, we own this election, wrote Sater, America's most difficult adversary agreeing that Donald is a good guy to negotiate. The spin on this from Trump attorney Michael Cohen, who's known Sater since they were children, says Sater's a big talker whose plans never came to pass, except the part about Trump getting elected. Now, a key member of the House Intelligence Committee says he wants testimony from Russian-American gangster and Trump associate Felix Sater, and perhaps testimony from Trump himself. There have been other developments this past week in the investigation. The Mueller probe is said to be keenly interested in one of the Russians who attended that meeting in Trump Tower, along with Trump's son, son son-in-law, and campaign manager. 
Renat Akmetchen is actually a U.S. citizen now and has been for the past eight years. But for the past 20 years, Akmetchen appears to have worked consistently for the Kremlin and is associated with the former deputy head of Russia's spy agency, the FSB. His father, his sister, and godfather all work for the FSB, but Akmetchen says he does not. He says he's just a house husband who's become the target of a sophisticated smear campaign. Akmetchen doesn't talk about his real job. He refers to his clients by nicknames, and he's been paid in stacks of $100 bills. His employers include two Russian billionaires accused of hacking the computers of their business competitors in the course of nasty court battles. With friends like these and charges that he hacked as well, it may be significant that Renat Akmetchen was in that Trump Tower meeting with Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort. The investigators certainly think so. We've just learned that Akmetchen spent hours testifying for one of Mueller's grand juries on September 11th of this year. And Don Jr. has been called to testify next week before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Mueller has also, in this past week, issued grand jury subpoenas to the executives who worked with Paul Manafort on an international PR and lobbying campaign, as well as Manafort's former lawyer and his current spokesman. That PR effort was on behalf of a Russian-backed political party in Ukraine, with the goal of getting Ukraine into the European Union, presumably to give Russia a voice in the EU. It was a plan for Vladimir Putin to infiltrate the European Union. These are the first witnesses to be called by a Mueller grand jury making this a milestone in the Trump-Russia investigation. And it happens a month after Manafort's apartment was raided by FBI agents in the middle of the night. Manafort had to leave his job as Trump's campaign manager when the Associated Press reported he was still working for that Russian-backed political party in Ukraine even during the campaign. It is both curious and noteworthy that Mueller would subpoena an attorney considering attorney-client privilege, and this is also a first, the lawyer for a person of interest being subpoenaed. But that grand jury subpoena is among dozens that have been issued at Mueller's behest in the past few months. The purpose of all these subpoenas may be to get Manafort to flip as a witness against the president, the president's son, and the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. One of Mueller's prosecutors is a specialist in flipping witnesses. Others are experts in the sorts of crimes for which Manafort is being investigated. And as indicated earlier, Mueller is now getting extra help on the Manafort case from New York's Attorney General. And then there's the former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, who is also a target of the Mueller team. The new revelation on him is that investigators are now looking at whatever role Flynn might have played in trying to get Clinton's emails from Russian hackers. This was a goal of a wealthy Republican operative who died just 10 days after telling a Wall Street Journal reporter he was trying to get Clinton's emails from Russian hackers. But the now-departed Peter W. Smith had told and written to colleagues that Mike Flynn was an ally of his in his campaign to get those emails. The Wall Street Journal now reports that the special counsel is looking at just how Flynn might have served as an ally in that effort. Jared Kushner, meanwhile, has hired a crisis management team. Specifically, the Kushner companies have hired a public relations firm that specializes in helping individuals and corporations that have managed to damage their own crucial reputations. The PR firm is Finsbury Communications, which recently helped Volkswagen's image back on its feet after that company conducted widespread cheating 
on vehicle emissions tests. As he did with lawyers, Jared Kushner has hired the best people to keep the name of the company he inherited from his father from being dragged through the mud. The second in line to be president is Vice President Mike Pence. And although he's not known to be under investigation, he has gotten more careful about what he says. Pence also recently hired a lawyer to handle the Trump-Russia investigation and has since spoken more carefully than he had before. Pence no longer throws around declarations like, of course not, as he did when he was first asked about contact between the Trump campaign and Russia back in March. When asked about that again this week by CBS News, Pence replied, I never witnessed any evidence of collusions. I'm not aware of it ever having occurred. Prior to this verbal change, Pence made a string of declarations he may already regret. It was Pence who declared that Trump's firing of James Comey had nothing to do with the Russia investigation, which turned out to be untrue. Pence claimed in March that the news of Mike Flynn talking with Russia was news to him, even though Pence was informed during the transition that Flynn had Russian business ties. Pence even said that before Election Day, no one on the Trump team had spoken with Russian officials, and we now know that's not true either. Mike Pence has made a string of false statements, including the Flynn statement that's clearly an intentional lie. And Pence still claims he's not aware of contacts between Russian government officials and officials from the Trump campaign, and although Pence still hasn't admitted it, we know that's also a lie. Cover up? For those who worry, for political reasons, that Mike Pence will succeed Donald Trump between now and 2020, this isn't over yet. Third in line for the presidency is House Speaker Paul Ryan, who apparently is not connected in any way to the Trump-Russia scandal, but has perhaps everything to gain from it. Ryan made last week a campaign stumping style stop in Seattle in the kind of public appearance no House Speaker has ever made. It was, as Trump might say, very presidential. Ryan toured and held a kind of town hall meeting at the Boeing aircraft plant and bemoaned the 35% tax Boeing pays and how it's much higher than what foreign competitors pay. Never mind that's not true. Boeing paid a 3% tax on its profits last year, 10 times less than what Ryan was claiming. With the state tax break Boeing also gets, its effective tax rate was zero. Corporate taxes are in reality as low as they have ever been in this country's history, and profits for Boeing and others have been described as gangbusters. But it looked very much like a presidential campaign with a man who already has a job. As Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan says he's opposed to censuring the president for Trump's remarks about Charlottesville. Ryan says Trump messed up, but that a formal scolding from Congress would be counterproductive. He says it would lead to the kind of bickering in Congress that would further divide the country. It would be counterproductive to the Republican agenda, which requires the support of the president to succeed. Ryan has written off previous Trump blunders as part of a learning process with the words, he's new at this. As for the pardoning of Joe Arpaio, Ryan, through a spokesman, said he does not agree with that decision. Through a spokesman. Two of Trump's most important cabinet members have distanced themselves from the boss since his Charlottesville remarks, citing both sides and the very fine people in a gathering of Nazis, Klansmen, and white nationalists. 
Defense Secretary Jim Mattis went to the trouble of flying overseas to speak with American soldiers to tell them to, quote, hold the line that the country would get back the power of inspiration. He urged the U.S. troops to show respect to each other, saying our country right now, it's got problems we don't have in the military. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, meanwhile, went on Chris Wallace's show on Fox to say about Charlottesville, the president speaks for himself. I've made my own comments as to our values, our commitment to freedom, our commitment to equal treatment of people the world over. What Trump got away with during the hurricane, the minimum wage and health care, love wins over hate. The comment from Bob Seska after this. I am so very grateful for the support you show for this free independent news and comment by doing as much of your shopping as possible through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. You land right on your own Amazon page. You get the same great prices as always. Trump hates Amazon because it owns the Washington Post. If you believe in what the press is doing, in what we're doing here, it's very important. You go to buzzburbank.com, click on the Amazon link, bookmark the page, and make it one of your favorites. Whether you're already a Prime member or you're shopping Amazon for the first time, just going through that link once helps sustain this program. Amazon has nearly everything you need right at your door and in two days or less for Prime members. Plus, you get Amazon Prime Video, which comes with the Prime membership, along with music and books and more. And please use my Amazon link if you make purchases for your office, school, church, or some other organization. To those of you who already do this, again, my thanks. And if Amazon's not right for you, you can also support this program by simply clicking the PayPal button just below the Amazon button in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. As we were all becoming transfixed on the pending tragedy in Texas, Trump announced a couple of things he knew would not be well-received. Under the cover of the approaching hurricane and after the West Coast close of business on a Friday night, Trump made two announcements he hoped most people would miss. He signed a memo instructing the military to ban transgenders, and he issued his first pardon of convicted former Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Monday, while Americans were rushing to the aid of Houston, Trump allowed the nation's police departments to again outfit themselves with military gear, hoping perhaps that those who object might not notice. First came the transgender ban as Americans were headed out for some much-needed R&R. It was Trump's first official instruction on the subject since tweeting doesn't count in government. Trump's memo essentially puts a freeze on the Obama administration's repeal of a law that kept transgenders from serving openly. Trump's order says the military may no longer sign those who identify as transgender and that it may no longer pay for sex reassignment surgeries medication, and other related medical care. Trump's memo did not say what the Pentagon is supposed to do with the thousands of transgender personnel it already has in uniform. Trump issued the memo even after a letter from more than 50 representatives in Congress who called the ban unconstitutional, denying equal protection under the law. And Trump is being sued by LGBT groups and the ACLU on behalf of five service members who say their careers have already been ruined by Trump's order. In the meantime, Defense Secretary James Mattis says transgender troops still serve and will be allowed to continue to serve and continue to get full medical benefits, at least until after the Pentagon completes its study of the matter. Mattis has also put a freeze on the enforcement of Trump's order until after that study is over. 
No word on when that might be. In other words, except for hostility from the president, nothing has changed, really, for transgenders in the military. But wait, there's more. Also, after the weekend ended, Trump pardoned Joe Arpaio, the former sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona, who had violated a court order to stop profiling suspected undocumented people. This bombastic county sheriff had become a self-appointed deputy for the federal immigration agencies, turning many of the people he'd detained over to the feds. He had even kept jailed for two days an American citizen suspected of being undocumented and much more. Arpaio was also found guilty of contempt of court charges. At 85 years old, he was likely headed for prison. Arpaio had been violating the Constitution and discriminating against Latinos for decades. But Trump pardoned him, perhaps to sharpen his pardoning skills for later, but it was also a prize for the white nationalists who still support Trump. Trump didn't mention the pardon by name in his Mr. Hyde speech in Phoenix earlier in the week. I won't do it tonight, Trump told the crowd, because I don't want to cause any controversy. No, he wanted to wait until Americans were headed out for their weekends to work on that. Trump didn't just use his pardoning powers, he abused them. He sent a signal to his people caught up in the Russia investigation that he has their backs. Normally, a word I insist on continuing to use, normally, a pardon doesn't come until at least five years after conviction. Normally, the person being pardoned expresses remorse. Arpaio has shown anything but remorse. And normally... A presidential pardon is reviewed first by the Justice Department, something that also didn't happen in this case. In fact, Justice knew nothing about the pardon until we did. And that's the new abnormal. And Trump does not appear to understand that if Joe Arpaio accepts the pardon, then Arpaio is, by law, admitting his guilt. Since all that, we learned that Trump twice tried to stop the prosecution of fellow birther and immigration fighter Joe Arpaio. At one point, Trump asked Attorney General Jeff Sessions if it would be possible for the government to drop its case against the renegade sheriff. Sessions reportedly replied that would be inappropriate. This from the Washington Post. The New York Times, meanwhile, reports that Trump asked the top White House lawyer, White House counsel Don McGahn, if the Arpaio case could be dropped months ago. The Post quotes a White House aide as saying that pardoning Arpaio has been on the president's mind ever since he was told that asking to drop the case was inappropriate. Which means Trump also knew it was inappropriate when he asked FBI Director James Comey to drop the case against his man Mike Flynn, which a former federal prosecutor and a former White House counsel say is fodder for obstruction of justice charges against Trump. By the way, with its large Hispanic population, some of Houston's storm victims were reluctant to seek shelter because of Trump's mass deportations and because of a new Texas law that was to go into effect tomorrow, outlawing sanctuary cities. A federal judge has now temporarily blocked that law from going into effect. Despite the human tragedy in Texas, the state's governor, Greg Abbott, says Texas will appeal the judge's decision. The situation has prompted Houston's mayor to promise that he would protect and help undocumented flood victims, even if he had to do it personally. On Monday, as the hurricane had caused 800-year flooding, Trump chose that moment to remilitarize the police. 
It involved rolling back another Obama reform to roll back limits on a program that let local police departments arm themselves with tanks and other surplus gear from the U.S. military. The program allows small towns to have big guns, something they'd begun to acquire during the protest that followed the killing of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. They bought tanks and grenade launchers, high-caliber weapons, and even camouflage uniforms. We've seen, said Obama, how militarized gear can give people a feeling like there's an occupying force as opposed to a force that's part of the community. Obama said it sends the wrong message. Trump apparently believes it sends the right message, praising Arpaio for doing his job after supporting Arpaio's belief that President Obama was born somewhere other than the United States. His attorney general, Jeff Sessions, said it sends, quote, a strong message that we will not allow criminal activity, violence, and lawlessness to become the new normal. On Monday, Trump signed an executive order reversing Obama's executive order of two years ago and reinforcing Trump's disdain for the judicial system, a system Trump went around rather than used. And all of this while Americans were, on top of addressing their own lives, focused on the flooding in Texas and Louisiana. How do Americans feel about Trump's pardon of Arpaio? The latest poll by Harvard's Political Studies Center shows 43% of us think Trump should be impeached for it. 42% say no, and 12% say he should at least be censured by Congress. Democrats on Capitol Hill have proposed the censure, but Republicans as a group reject that idea. Earlier this month, Trump threatened to shut down the government if Congress doesn't pay for his border wall, which he'd promised would be financed by Mexico through clever negotiation. Mexico has said it will not pay for the wall. Even Republicans in Congress have said they won't pay for the wall. Sunday morning, Trump tweeted, With Mexico being one of the highest crime nations in the world, we must have the wall, putting the words THE WALL in all caps. Mexico will pay for it through reimbursement slash other, Trump wrote. Later that day, Mexico responded with the old-fashioned government way by issuing an official statement rather than a tweet issued by its Office of Foreign Ministry. That statement said Mexico would not pay for the wall, quote, under any circumstances. And the statement added that this is not a negotiating strategy on Mexico's part, but rather a matter of principle and a matter of dignity. And to set the record straight, Mexico is not one of the highest crime nations in the world. It doesn't even make the top 10. Salon.com writer Bob Seska has a bit of a hoarse throat this week, not from screaming about Trump, but from reading out loud the 35-page dossier that magnified the Trump-Russia investigation. You can hear that at bobseska.com. But Bob still has enough voice to offer evidence that Trump is intentionally trying to anger most people and why that's not going to work. Thank you, Buzz. It ought to make perfect sense now. For a few years, I've been comparing Donald Trump's behavior to that of an online comment section troll, or more specifically, a Twitter troll who's managed to build a political movement around the concept of deliberately jabbing political opponents simply to watch them freak out. But now, after 224 days of the catastrophic Trump presidency, it should be abundantly obvious that he's setting policy and making decisions based exclusively on trolling both Democrats and never-Trump Republicans. After all, a significant chunk of Trump's reputation is wrapped up in his obnoxious Twitter habit, a habit that seems to be partly inspired by the tone and content of Fox and Friends, mixed with his desperate need for constant attention. Just about everything he does is geared toward fluffing his rally supporters, including the tormenting of liberals. 
For example, his desire to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act wasn't about constructing a better health care system. It was about crapping all over the legacy of his predecessor, Barack Obama, and especially Obama's supporters. It was about revenge, and his people don't seem to care that their health coverage would have been among the first to be rescinded if one of Trump's many replacement bills had passed. They didn't care because Trump's obsession with repealing Obamacare simply pissed off liberals. While there have been many other examples of Trump's trolling beyond the confines of social media, the most recent example has been the pardoning of racist and convicted criminal Joe Arpaio, the disgraced former sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona. The close proximity between Trump's horrendous comments and the Nazi terrorist attack in Charlottesville and the pardoning of Arpaio isn't mere coincidence. I'd wager that Trump made the decision to pardon the controversial Phoenix sheriff as payback against his political opponents for criticizing Trump's remarks in which he appeared to sympathize with the white supremacists, KKK members, and neo-Nazis who gathered in Charlottesville. We already know that Trump was furious about the response to his response to the chaos in Charlottesville. We also know that Trump's response has damaged his poll numbers and seemed to amplify discussions about his precarious mental health and the possibility of impeachment. Pardoning Arpaio sounds like a great big F.U. to critics of all three of his ill-fated attempts at public remarks about Charlottesville. And saving Arpaio from a prison sentence was his way of punishing the opposition by running to the rescue of a notorious birther and anti-immigration racist. And we know that Trumpers love to stir up what they call liberal tears. Confirming Trump's intentions, Kurt Schlichter, an occasional Fox News analyst, town hall writer, and Trump supporter, tweeted on Saturday... Quote, the main reason for President Trump to pardon Sheriff Joe was, fuck you, leftists, the new rules, bitches, unquote. Likewise, Trumper Joe Cardillo tweeted this, quote, once real Donald Trump eliminates DACA, leftists will drown in their own tears. Win-win, unquote. So there are apparently new rules for American politics among Trump supporters, allowing the president complete latitude to govern based on whether it'll precipitate outrage among the left. Cheering for pissant Batman villain tactics, as Schlichter, Cardillo, and others have, only serves to confirm the president's moral bankruptcy. It's the ultimate manifestation of his entire political career, a thin-skinned King Joffrey, a schoolyard bully handing down decisions based on nothing deeper than his pathological obsession with disruption and his ham-fisted attempts at revenge against his perceived enemies. Historically, however, it's a recipe for disaster, an administration built upon a wafer-thin tactic that's destined to collapse, given how it can be easily flummoxed using Bugs Bunny's rabbit-season-duck-season switcheroo. Not only does this tactic abdicate policy-based, issue-based, morality-based decisions to perceived grown-ups outside the Trumposphere, but it makes the president ever easier to manipulate into making ever worse decisions. Trump knows nothing about policy, and we know exactly how he'll react from event to event. These are two potential fatal weaknesses that together manifest a huge advantage for Democrats and never-Trumpers, revealing Trump's every move long before he makes it. Consequently, he's much easier to goad into a corner to be swiftly checkmated. Perhaps this is why nearly every choice Trump has made has been wrong, ending in disaster for the White House. Whether it's his inexplicable and self-defeating approach to obstructing the Trump-Russia investigation or his ongoing staffing disasters, the list of Trump's successes are, charitably speaking, minuscule. He simply doesn't consider the potential of any situation beyond the reaction of his enemies and how he can electrify his rally-going disciples. 
Sure, pardoning Sheriff Joe might put lead in the pencils of loyalists like Schlichter and Cardillo, but it'll ultimately backfire on Trump. It further augments the growing sentiment that he's either a genuine white supremacist or a fellow traveler, and that his heretofore undiagnosed mental issues might make him ineligible to continue serving. Making decisions based on whether they will trigger liberal tears is nothing more than political road rage, ignoring everything else on the freeway, including the oncoming tractor-trailer with the name Mueller printed on the side. Rewinding back to the attempt to repeal Obamacare, for example, Trump's approach on this front has only managed to isolate him from former Republican allies on the Hill, including the Senate Majority Leader, while utterly burying the repeal and replace process likely forever. Pursuing a policy based on scolding Obama supporters turned out horribly for Trump. Frankly, I'm not sure why Schlichter and the others are so stoked about this tactic, given how Trump has botched, bungled, and failed at virtually everything he's touched. Then again, if trolling the anti-Trump coalition is the entire point of supporting the president, and it seems more and more like it is, then fine. If the full extent of the Trump presidential legacy is nothing more than being the nation's first troll president, I can live with that, especially if it continues to sabotage the GOP's legislative priorities, as well as significantly roadblocking Trump's longevity as chief executive. Trump supporter Rush Limbaugh once observed, quote, Trump is an internet troll, adding, American politics is determined by trolls on the internet today. Weirdly and sadly, Rush was right. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Catch him at Salon.com and every Tuesday and Thursday on The Bob Seska Show here at RealmNetwork.com. I'm proud to be one of the regular guests on that program. I will rejoin Bob on Tuesday, September 12th. A little more to the left, please. Even in a Trump administration, a federal judge has rejected changes to Texas's voter ID law. Texas was changing its tough law after a federal appeals court found it intentionally discriminated against minority voters. So Texas softened the law to try to get it by. But now a federal judge has rejected those alterations, saying they don't do enough to end that voter discrimination. Among other things, the Texas law accepts only some photo IDs while rejecting others. The law, even the softened version, won't allow employees of the state to use their state government ID photo cards. Actually, other photo IDs can be used so long as the voter files a Declaration of Reasonable Impediment. You know, that form so many of us keep handy in our desk drawers. As usual, Texas says it will appeal the latest ruling against its tough voter ID law, which means it will now go to the same appeals court that had rejected everything about that law after Texas appealed the last time. One of the big Republican talking points for repealing Obamacare was the fact that in many counties, there were few, if any, companies available on the health care marketplace. The reason for that was less about Obamacare than it was about the uncertainty among insurance companies about what this new Congress and what this new president were about to do. For many, the choices were few and in a few cases non-existent, even though that was more rare than Republicans had claimed. In fact, we were down to just one county that had no health care options on its website. But now, that reason for repeal goes away entirely, the reasoning that Obamacare had somehow reduced the options. Thanks to a company called CareSource, the last county in America to have no choices will it have at least one choice now. 
Paulding County, Ohio, was to be the last and only Bear County in the U.S. next year, and CareSource, which serves other counties across the country, will now serve Paulding County, Ohio as well. And the presence of CareSource is likely to attract competition and more choices. And the fact that all counties in the U.S. will be covered by Obamacare is one less reason to repeal the Affordable Care Act, something most Americans didn't want at this point anyway. It's official, said one pro-Obamacare group. The biggest threat to your health care is still sabotage from the Trump administration and Republicans in Congress. The Democrats giveth, the Republicans taketh away. Living on minimum wage in St. Louis had just gotten a little less difficult. The Democrat-led city council had passed an ordinance raising the minimum wage within its city limits to 10 bucks an hour. The Missouri state minimum wage law had it at 7.70 an hour. For many people trying to support their families with one or more low-paying jobs, the higher St. Louis minimum meant another 200 bucks a week. 30,000 people got those raises and quickly got used to having that money. Now, the Republican-led state legislature has stepped in with a new law that says the state's minimum supersedes any minimum set by a paltry city like St. Louis. Now, St. Louis employers have a choice of paying the new lower state minimum or to step up on their own and keep paying the old St. Louis minimum. One employer says he'll keep his wages at 10 bucks an hour for starting pay to keep his employees' morale up. What McDonald's may do is up to McDonald's. It hasn't said yet whether it will side with its workers or with the Republicans who run Missouri. Higher local minimum wages have been crushed in other states as well, while still other states and cities are voluntarily raising their minimums to keep up with the times. That's a sharp contrast to the federal minimum, which has been stuck at $7.25 an hour for more than eight years now, thanks to Republican resistance. And now, the week in North Korea. It began a little over a week ago when Trump told his Arizona crowd that Kim Jong-un has finally learned to respect the United States. North Korea's government news responded by calling Trump's frequent use of Twitter as weird and ego-driven and, quote, spouting rubbish to make his assistants have a hard time. Even a blind squirrel can find a nut, or three. Trump has used Twitter to prod North Korea, warning it not to act unwisely. In Arizona, Trump had said, Kim Jong-un, I respect the fact that I believe he is starting to respect us. I respect that fact very much, he said, repeating for emphasis, respect that fact. Later that same day, North Korea unveiled its new upgraded intercontinental ballistic missile. And then two days later, North Korea launched at least three ballistic missiles into the peninsula's East Sea. Then came word that North Korea had completed preparations for another test of its nuclear weapon. And then just three days ago, the big event, North Korea launched a missile that could have reached Guam, but fired instead over the heads of our allies in Japan and then into the sea. Warning sirens were sounded in northern Japan, and people there panicked appropriately. Japan made no attempt to shoot down the missile because it alone is ill-prepared to do so. And to complicate matters, North Korea fired that missile from near downtown Pyongyang, the capital, a heavily populated area that would suffer countless casualties if a nation were to fire back at the source. The U.S. president responded in an actual statement this time instead of a tweet, 
All options, he wrote, are on the table. That was two days ago. But yesterday, Trump and his defense secretary, James Mattis, seemed to part company on those options. Trump said diplomacy hadn't worked and, quote, talking is not the answer. Secretary Mattis quickly corrected that, saying, quote, we're never out of options. Perhaps at least one of those statements represents the current U.S. policy on North Korea. We just don't know which one. Also yesterday, the U.S. military launched and then shot down two of its own ballistic missiles in another successful test of our missile defense system. Overnight, the U.S. and South Korea flew eight fighter jets and two bombers over the Korean peninsula in another show of force. And the Pentagon is considering delivering a setback to North Korea by way of a massive cyber attack. Our story continues. Stay tuned for further developments. There are a few new details about the acoustic attack on Americans in Cuba. The State Department says 16 people at the U.S. Embassy in Havana have suffered from various symptoms of that attack, which the department now says were caused by ultrasound energy. In some cases, the symptoms resemble those of a concussion. One American appears to have a permanent hearing loss. America's top law enforcement agencies are investigating, and increasingly, it appears it may have been the Cuban government behind the attack for reasons not explained. In the meantime, two Cuban diplomats remain expelled from the U.S. in response to that attack. Chicago is still trying to clean up its police mess. A federal grand jury this week convicted a former Chicago police officer for unreasonable force for wounding two teenagers by firing 16 shots into their car. The officer was found guilty on two felonies, including civil rights violations. That officer now faces up to 10 years in federal prison. And the Illinois Attorney General has now filed a lawsuit to get a federal court to oversee police reform in Chicago, a move that is welcomed by the city's mayor. There were three small victories for love in the battle between love and hate this past week in the U.S. Organizers of a so-called Patriot Prayer Rally in San Francisco canceled the event when they decided it would be unsafe in the face of greater numbers of counter-protesters. The week before, when 40 white nationalists gathered in Boston, they were flanked by more than 10,000 protesters. The second small victory was the removal of of alt-right presidential mouthpiece Sebastian Gorka, who, like the removed Steve Bannon, had also worked at Breitbart. And the third small victory for love this past week, the unveiling in Atlanta of a statue of Martin Luther King Jr., as Confederate statues around the country continue to come down. Subways 11-inch footlongs, first graders with guns, and are you getting enough fat in your diet? in the third and final segment, up next. We love to surprise people, especially the people we love. And people like surprises if they're really good ones. This is a good one. Pro Flowers surprised me recently with a bouquet of beautiful fresh roses. It lasted for seven days just like they promised, really brightened up the place. Pro Flowers can help you spring a bright surprise on someone you love. And Pro Flowers has a surprise for you. Get 20% off any of their unique summer rose bouquets or any other bouquet priced at $29 or more. If you can't decide, go with the roses. The roses are amazing. Guaranteed fresh for at least seven days of your money back. You pick the delivery date. And take it from a longtime customer. Pro Flowers gives you more bloom for your buck. 
big, beautiful flowers with long, healthy stems. Remember, 20% off summer roses or any other bouquet at $29 or more. Go now to proflowers.com. Use the code REALM at checkout. That's R-E-L-M, REALM, after the slash, at proflowers.com. Surprise yourself with just how you can surprise somebody else at proflowers.com slash R-E-L-M. Recent advances in automotive safety technology are saving lives. Crash injuries are down 21%. A report out this week indicates that collision avoidance systems, blind spot, and lane departure alarms appear to have cut the number of single vehicle sideswipe and head-on crashes by 11%. Blind spot technology has cut lane change crashes by 14%. It's cut the number of injuries from such crashes by 23%. Rearview cameras are preventing one-sixth of the backup crashes, and auto-braking cuts the number of rear-enders. Mathematicians can use those numbers to project what it would be like if all cars already had that technology, and they found that in 2015, it would have cut 85,000 crashes and over 55,000 injuries. We are still learning about nutrition. A shocking new study says people may not be getting enough fat in their diets if they're on a low-fat diet. Besides enhancing flavor and texture in food, fat is essential to human life. Fat is one of the three nutrients we eat, along with protein and carbohydrates. And although fat has more than double the calories of either protein or carbs, it turns out carbs are the greater evil when it comes to controlling your weight and your health. A surprising new worldwide study suggests that people with adequate fat in their diets live longer than those who go without it. Again, we're hearing it's the carbs, especially refined carbohydrates in our processed foods, uh, potato chips, the worst of all evils. You should eat good carbs, whole grains, whole fruits and vegetables, yogurt and chocolate milk. Sure, eating fruits and vegetables and beans and nuts can lower the risk of premature death, but this study says that eating three or four servings of those each day is plenty. Eating more legumes, fruits, or vegetables than that seems to have no added effect. This new information means there's nothing dietarily wrong with that hamburger with lettuce and tomato. The study says it's the bun that's killing you prematurely. We're going to need extra napkins. It's common knowledge now that tobacco companies for years misled the public from the dangers of smoking, even though their own research showed it to be deadly. Now, the same holds true for big oil and climate change. A study at Harvard University makes the case that ExxonMobil worked to discredit climate change studies, while its own private studies showed climate change to be real and man-made, caused by the very products ExxonMobil sells. This Harvard study just out comes at the same time ExxonMobil is under investigation by the New York Attorney General's office for misleading its shareholders about the causes for climate change. That's a financial crime. Also during the investigation, over two-thirds of the company's shareholders voted to instruct ExxonMobil executives to be more transparent about climate change, indicating they have not been transparent so far. Misleading investors is a serious financial crime the New York Attorney General's office is well-equipped to prosecute. That office says also that Trump's business dealings are, quote, also on our radar. Trump's Secretary of State Rex Tillerson came to that job from being the CEO of ExxonMobil. Has playing the lottery made you rich yet? 
It worked for 54-year-old Eddie Tipton for a while. Eddie was a computer programmer who worked at the Multi-State Lottery Association's office in Iowa, and he rigged the game in five heartland states. He was able to influence the winning numbers in Iowa, where he worked, and in Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Wisconsin for a while. But Eddie Tipton got caught when, seven years ago, he tried to anonymously collect a lotto ticket worth $16.5 million. Wisconsin caught him as well, with evidence he'd rigged a lottery drawing there. Eddie Tipton has now pleaded guilty to all of it, all the rigging in all the states, with the help of his brother, who used to be a judge in Texas. The two of them will now repay the $3 million they ultimately stole. Eddie has now also apologized in open court, acknowledging, quote, all the people I know that I hurt. In Iowa, Eddie's been sentenced to up to 25 years in prison. His lawyer has asked the Iowa judge if that could be served at the same time as the sentence Eddie will get next month in Wisconsin. An engineer for Volkswagen is going to prison for more than three years after helping to design the software that helped VW cheat on those emissions tests. He had perfected a device that made the two-liter engines run in a way that allowed them to pass the pollution test they would have otherwise failed. This engineer at VW is the first but not the last official there to go to prison over that massive cheating scandal. It's been a week of mergers and grand partnerships when it comes to online and -and brick-and-mortar shopping. Walmart announced it will partner with Google in about a month to offer products on Walmart's website through the Google Express website and through Google's voice-activated home device. That device from Google is similar to Amazon's Alexa and Echo, which brings us to the other new partnering in the news. With federal approval out of the way, Amazon bought Whole Foods for $13.7 billion. Known by critics as Whole Paycheck, Amazon immediately cut the grocery chain's prices by as much as 43%, mostly on staples. A rotisserie chicken that sold for 14 bucks now goes for 10. Amazon's stellar reputation will also give Whole Foods business a boost. Subway can keep serving 11-inch subs and keep calling them footlongs. A federal appeals court judge in Chicago has sharply criticized a class action lawsuit filed by nine customers who felt cheated. They hadn't been getting the 12 inches they expected and paid for. The court refused to let the plaintiffs sue to cover their legal expenses, which at that point had come to over a half million dollars. But the judge did grant the nine plaintiffs 500 bucks apiece. One of the three judges on that bench was not happy, saying it was a worthless lawsuit since the length of the bun makes no difference to the amount of ingredients it contains since extra toppings and condiments come at no extra charge. As far as the judge was concerned, it was the lawsuit that fell short. From our this-may-not-mean-anything-but department, our story begins in Little Rock, Arkansas, where police spotted a black Hummer parked along the side of the interstate during drive traffic. Stopping to ask if everything was all right seemed the prudent thing to do, especially since on top of the Hummer was a casket. An empty casket, fortunately, still. But when the officers got out of their car, the Hummer sped away, leading the police on a chase that wandered off the interstate and into the city, a chase that finally ended with road spikes. Aside from the obvious charges, they've charged the driver with driving on counterfeit license plates. A Hummer with fake tags 
and a casket on top with a driver who fled from police. Surely there is more to this story, and we're eager to hear it when this guy's case comes up in court toward the end of September. Taking a bunch of six-year-olds to a firing range, what, what could possibly go wrong? That's the concern of parents in Georgia, where some believe first grade is not too early to handle a firearm. The private school that had arranged this field trip to a firing range may now be facing an investigation by state officials. The school had posted online photos of six- and seven-year-olds handling guns that were reportedly not loaded. But they also handled bullets and watched instructions on how to fire a gun. The owner of the school calls it a wonderful education experience, enriching the kids' understanding of historical figures like Davy Crockett and Annie Oakley. The state of Georgia, after all, requires private schools to teach about Davy Crockett and Annie Oakley. No one was injured this time. Sports superfans are a dime a dozen, but you got to love the clever ones. Lifelong Philadelphia Eagles fan Jeff Regal died last week at the age of 56. He waited all of his short life to see the Eagles win a Super Bowl. It never happened. Jeff wrote his own obituary, and in it, he said he would like to have eight Eagles players serve as his pallbearers, quoting the obit, so they can let me down one last time. Between the hurricane and the rush back to school, we didn't go to the movies this past weekend. We stayed away in numbers great enough to make the news. It's been 15 years since Hollywood had such a bad weekend. The top movie, Hitman's Bodyguard, for the second week in a row, made just $10 million in an age in which anything less than 20 is hardly worth mentioning in Hollywood. The number 10 movie on the top 10 list, the Emoji Movie, made less than $2.5 million. Passings and Passages Director Toby Hooper, who guided Poltergeist, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Invaders from Mars, and Salem's Lot, has died at the age of 74. He also directed the Billy Idol music video, Dancing with Myself. And disc jockey-turned-actor Jay Thomas has died. He won Emmys for his work on Murphy Brown. He was also on Cheers as Carla's husband. Cancer took Jay Thomas at the age of 69. A friend of over 25 years called Thomas one of the funniest and kindest men I have had the honor to call a friend. A lot of us remember Thomas for the story he told each year for years on David Letterman's TV Christmas shows. Interesting TV note, the Fox News Channel is going off the air in England for a lack of viewers. Meanwhile, Fox News ratings here in the U.S. have dipped as well. One more note about the recent solar eclipse. We have now seen reports of people showing up at clinics and eye doctors because their eyes had been damaged and they were in pain because they had put sunscreen in their eyes, on their eyeballs. As we're hearing more and more these days, there is no cure for stupid. This is not your usual a woman finds a frog in her salad story. Oh, sure, Becky Garfinkel of Corona, California is not happy, there was a live frog in her Taylor Farm salad from Target, especially since she is a vegetarian. I discovered him after eating almost my entire salad, Becky wrote on Facebook, adding, and I almost stabbed him. The poor little froggy was coated in salad dressing and didn't appear to be doing well. His movement was sluggish, and at one point he just rolled over onto his back there on Becky's salad plate. Her husband did some tiny chest 
compressions with his finger on the little frog, and it came back to life. Okay, says Becky, we have to keep him. Oh, sure, there'll still be some legal maneuvering since Becky says it was, quote, the most disgusting thing she has ever seen. She's equally incensed Target's offer of a $5 gift card doesn't even cover the cost of the salad. And vegetarian that she is, quote, I have no desire to ever eat a salad again. And all of that is good fodder for Becky's lawyer, especially since she added, I'm petrified of the thought of salad. In the meantime, Becky loves her new pet, the frog who came with dinner. With the state of the world continuously and increasingly desperate, the important thing is to enjoy life and embrace it while still facing our demons head on. Well, granted, this guy's a musician. Granted, he's from Australia. But Glenn Donnelly taught us a thing or two about that as he celebrated his 30th birthday in the skies over New South Wales. Glenn celebrated the anniversary of his birth in his birthday suit, skydiving naked. Here's the thing. Before the jump, Glenn was terrified of both of those things, skydiving and exposing his body to anyone, much less everyone. Glenn had what doctors now call body dysmorphic disorder. He says that after one of his co-workers, another musician in the London Symphony Orchestra, pointed out Glenn's expanding belly, he became so self-conscious he held in his gut every waking hour of the day. It was kind of an obsession. Glenn stopped enjoying life. He stopped playing in the symphony even in the midst of a successful career. So he made this naked skydive to confront and overcome his fears. He also did it for charity, raising thousands of dollars for good vibes causes, including the Butterfly Foundation and the Mankind Project. There's one other thing you should know about Glenn's naked skydive, that he did both of those things while doing something he already does very well. He played happy birthday on a violin on his way down. As much as they may have wanted to, police in Denmark did not arrest the street performer who was singing an Oasis song outside a convenience store. The man was playing his guitar and singing Wonderwall, and the patrolman who approached him really likes that song. But the officer sent him packing, told him to go home, after hearing the man sing, quote, very badly and very loudly, as the patrolman wrote in his report. He certainly did not sound like Liam Gallagher, said the officer, adding, just because you can play Wonderwall does not mean you should. And finally, it's not often firefighters get to eat those they rescue. Oh, irony, thy name is Pork. Sixty tons of hay caught fire at a farm in Wiltshire, England, endangering the lives of two sows and 18 piglets. Firefighters from the Pusey Station responded, battled the blaze, and in the process rescued the 18 piglets. The pig rancher, a woman named Rachel Rivers, wanted to show her gratitude, so she gave the firefighters some sausages made from those 18 piglets. I'm sure vegetarians will hate this, says Rachel, but you know what they say, out of the fire and into the frying pan. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.